0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. Today's podcast is the second in our four-part miniseries on prenatal genetics. Our first podcast was Monday, which was an introduction to prenatal genetics. In today's podcast, Looking Into Our Baby's Genes, aneuploidy Screening and Testing, Dr. Tamar Goldwasser and I discussed the topic of screening pregnancies for genetic abnormalities in the fetus. We discuss advanced maternal age, the nuchal ultrasound, non-invasive screening and invasive testing. This is a complex topic with a long history and it often generates a lot of confusion. Hopefully, you'll find it both interesting and informative. Next week, look forward to two more podcasts in our prenatal genetics mini-series. Hope you have a great July 4th weekend and have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Women, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, we're here again with Dr. Tamar Goldwasser, OBGYN and medical geneticist, and we're going to talk today about aneuploidy screening. Tamar, welcome to Healthful Woman.
1: Thanks for having me again. Just
0: so everyone understands what we're talking about, what exactly is aneuploidy.
1: Aneuploidy means that a human being or another person has a different number of chromosomes than what you would have expected. We expect that humans have 46 chromosomes. They get 23 from their mother, 23 from their father. And aneuploidy is any time you have a different number other than 46. So either you have an extra chromosome or are you missing a chromosome, or you have an extra piece of a chromosome that's big enough to count as an extra chromosome.
0: When you refer to 46 chromosomes, you mean in every cell of our body?
1: In every cell of our body.
0: Right. And so, you know, we refer to it as aneuploidy screening. I think colloquially, most people talk about Down syndrome screening, because Down syndrome is the most famous, so to speak, of the aneuploidies, where there's an Extra 21st chromosome. So, you know, when we say aneuploidy screening, a lot of patients are thinking simply Down syndrome screening, but we're screening for much more than just Down syndrome when we do this type of screening.
1: Yeah. So, when someone comes and they're pregnant and they say, I want to be sure that, or I want to check to see if the baby has Down syndrome, the way that I understand it is they want to know, does the baby have a serious genetic abnormality or a genetic problem? And so, yeah. So, hence, aneuploidy screening, checking to see if there's an extra chromosome or if there's a missing chromosome.
0: Right. and I think that's such an important distinction that you made is, you know, there's so much to try to understand when doing this screening. So for example, we talk about Down syndrome, but again, Down syndrome is a condition and a lot of people don't want to screen their their babies or their fetuses for Down syndrome because for them, sort of, that's great, and the baby's born, and the baby does or does not have Down syndrome, and we're going to love him and her and raise him or her, and we don't need to know any of this stuff till after birth, and that's perfectly fine. Like, that's great. Other people, they want to do testing before the baby's born just so they know, right, just so they understand, and they can, you know, prepare and just understand what's going to happen and maybe have a plan in place. And other people are just thinking sort of more broadly not Down syndrome, but just in general, is my baby going to be healthy? Are there going to be conditions that are related to genetics? And there's so much about that. And it's really important to have a conversation with the patient to understand what exactly are we trying to do here when we do this screening or this testing so that what we do is aligned with what the patient wants.
1: What you what you described is pretest test counseling. So that's so important, right? So A patient comes and says, I want to check for Down syndrome. It's worth a minute or two of a conversation, sometimes longer, to find out what are we looking for? What are our goals in this test?
0: How would you approach that conversation? Like, what kind of goals might people have?
1: I would say most people say, I want to be sure the baby is going to be healthy. And so I'll say, "Okay, well, there are certain tests that are available. There are actually a lot of tests that are available while you're pregnant that can screen for certain conditions. And even if you go all the way, let's say, and check for as many uh, conditions that are available, we always take a step back and remind ourselves that there's no such thing as the perfect baby. There's no such thing as 100%. And we have to go into this testing knowing that we're just checking for what we can check for. And then in the end, we always know having a baby is taking a risk. And you know that things can come up as people develop, as children develop. We can't always be prepared for everything in advance. So for those who want to know it all, that's my counseling. We can test for what we can look for, and then we have to just, you know, accept whatever else com- comes our way. And then there are patients who say, well, there's my cousin has a, has Down syndrome, and I want to know if my baby's going to have Down syndrome. And so then that's a very targeted question, and we can, you know, go on and investigate that for them. And some people really don't know what, what they're actually tra- asking they just worry that the baby should be healthy and those patients you know you have to then break it down and say well we can do a test to check for some things are you interested in knowing are you the type of person who will feel better with some of this information or does testing make you feel anxious and you know let's think about how how this may play out in various ways different people need different levels of guidance right and
0: it's it's hard because there's a lot of complexities that come into this conversation you know for example for some people, it starts bringing up the the idea of would I have an abortion? Would I end a pregnancy if a baby had a certain condition? And people don't want to think about that. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's pretty gruesome to start thinking about what would it require for me to end a pregnancy that I wanted, and it's it's a very difficult conversation in general, right? And it's obviously mm-hmm. very heated conversation for a lot of people and people have very strong feelings about that one way or another. That's number one. Number two, a lot of people don't exactly understand what we can and can't test for. And then there's also issues of how accurate are certain things. Meaning again, and we'll talk about screening tests versus tests that actually give you a diagnosis and also What does a normal test, quote unquote, mean? I mean, what do we actually learn? So let's say you do a test and say, okay, I'm really confident or I know 100% your baby does not have Down syndrome. And like you said, that doesn't mean the baby's going to be healthy. It just means the baby won't have Down syndrome. There's a ton of things, unfortunately, people can have and be born with. And we can test for, you know, a number of them, but not all of them. And so people say, does this mean my baby won't have autism? And I'd say, well, no, like we can't even test a newborn to see if he or she is or is going to have autism. So you can't test a newborn for it. You certainly can't test a fetus for it. And there's a lot of, as you said, pre-test counseling that has to go into place. So everyone understands exactly what are we doing here? Like, why are we doing this? And I think that doesn't happen a lot. I think a lot of people just walk in. They say, oh, yeah, my doctor did some genetic blood test and said everything was fine. You are like, well, that can mean so many different (laughs) things, you know? (laughs) And it's like, oh, okay, good.
1: you You brought up so many so many things so i i agree that well you know i think in the practice of obgyn there's just so much to be done in the the first few appointments that the the testing for for down syndrome let's say is is just one of the things so i i think that the conversation doesn't go as in, in depth as we're talking about right now i think the important thing there is that people should just know that Genetic counselors are out there, medical geneticists are out there. And if the conversation needs to go in that direction, they should just phone a friend. I will sometimes ask people point blank, you know, if you find out that the baby has a certain condition, do you think you might think about terminating the pregnancy? And it's usually people are not prepared to be asked that question, but will sit in a quiet room and they'll sit with their thoughts. And sometimes there's no answer available right away sometimes there's an answer right away. And if a, if the answer is, yes, I don't think my lifestyle or my family can handle something like this right now, then I'll say to that, I'll reflect back to the person. Okay, so your answer tells me that you want information and that you would it would be important to you. So that would push us a little in the direction of testing. Uh, whereas if someone, knee-jerk reaction is definitely not, I would never consider ending a pregnancy. Then we open the door to saying, well, maybe we should just, not go so far and not do all this testing that might just bring you anguish or that may upset you during your pregnancy. But those patients also may decide that they do want the information because they may make a choice on which school district they're going to buy a house in or which hospital they're going to deliver at. So it's not really about whether to keep or not continue a pregnancy. It's a lot. It, it, genetic testing and genetic information can help patients. Families make great decisions about, you know, where they're going to lead their life, what schools, what, what, uh, what cities are going to give us better access to services if they're going to need services down the road. So yeah, you got to get to know your patient before, to, before you know, which, which is the best test to recommend for them.
0: Right. And that's such an important point because so many people think it's sort of this all or none, meaning, well, since I would you know, consider ending a pregnancy. I want to test for everything. Whereas someone else, I would not consider ending a pregnancy. I want to test for nothing. And that's, that's fine. If someone, if that's sort of the, the conclusion that people get to, but there's other reasons to have information and knowledge aside from just ending a pregnancy, like you said, it could be just sort of a family situation. It could be potentially do, you, does this baby need to be born In a place with more medical services, or do some of these conditions require treatment early after birth? And also, sometimes after birth, making a diagnosis is complicated because it takes weeks and you have to, you know, all these visits and there's so much else going on. So, there's a lot of reasons someone might do it. And so, there is definitely a range of what people want. Sort of the least aggressive way is to not do any screening and just say, okay, my, you know, my baby's my baby and I'm not going to go down this road and do genetic you know, screening or testing, and that's fine. On the other end of the of that scale is what we call invasive testing, like a CVS or an amniocentesis, and we'll talk about that, and that's really like a diagnosis. That's like actually testing the baby, like really not different from, you know, doing a blood test or a cheek swab of the newborn. That's sort of the level of information you're going to get. And then in between, which is where people get confused, is all these options and paradigms and algorithms for screening, which is not doing nothing, but it's not doing invasive testing like with a needle. It's doing either a blood test or ultrasound or sort of taking a history and saying, okay, where do you fall in the risk spectrum? And then maybe if you are more higher risk, you'll do invasive testing. And if you're more lower risk, you won't do testing.
1: So I do spend some time explaining to people what a screening test is. and so. Back in the day, if a patient would walk in and say, "What are my chances to have a baby with a chromosome problem?" we would just use their age and say, "Okay, for someone your age, this is your risk to have a baby with aneuploidy, which is you know not 46 chromosomes for human, or this is your risk for Down syndrome." And now you can do a screening test, which will take in more information, take into account more information that's unique to you and your specific Pregnancy that you're carrying, and that'll give us a better prediction about your chances for having a baby with a chromosome problem. That this fetus, that the one that you're carrying, has not 46 chromosomes, but you know something else. Right. Some tests will take into account an ultrasound measurement of the nuchal translucency, which is the thickness of fluid at the back of the baby's neck, or a blood test that will measure certain proteins and hormones that are currently circulating in the woman's bloodstream that come from her pregnancy and also her, her age and her ethnicity and her weight and her whether or not she has diabetes. And they can calculate a more specific prediction. Okay, here are your chances for this baby in this time and this pregnancy to have a chromosome problem. So it's still just a prediction. It's not a diagnosis because you haven't actually tested the pregnancy directly. And then it gives a woman a better sense. Okay, am I in the higher risk category or am I in the lower risk category? And sometimes that's useful for doctors and patients to decide should I go further and do invasive testing or can I feel comfortable leaving things as is?
0: Right. And there's two really, really important points that you made there that I want to highlight. And the first is that, you know, in terms of age, It is well-known, and it has been well-known for a very long time, that as women get older, the risk of aneuploidy, the risk of having a baby with one of these chromosomal abnormalities increases. So the risk for a a 30-year-old is higher than for a 20-year-old, and the risk for a 40-year-old is higher than for a 30-year-old. And there was this classic cutoff at age 35, where if you were over 35, doctors would say, okay, you're old enough that your risk is high enough. That you need, that was a term that was used, you need an amniocentesis or a CVS to find out. And if you're 34 years, 11 months, and 31 days or younger, you don't need it. You're perfectly fine. And that was the reason 35 was picked is only because of sort of what was the actual risk at, at age 35, about 1 in 200, and what was the risk of the procedure itself, about 1 in 200. And so the thought was, if you're over thirty five the risk of having a baby with Down syndrome is higher than the risk of the procedure, and if you're under thirty five the risk of having a baby with Down syndrome is lower than the risk of the procedure, so that's why it was picked. Nothing actually happens at age thirty five nothing magically increases the risk steadily goes up, and so what you're saying is that the originally, when we had no other way to screen, doctors would just say, "Okay, we'll use your age because that's what we know but Now that we have other options, you know, with ultrasound or blood tests, we can do more screening. And the the other thing that you mentioned, which is so important, is that these types of genetic conditions, aneuploidy, an extra chromosome, a missing chromosome, you know, Down syndrome, almost always have nothing to do with the genetics of the parents, meaning it's not passed down from parent to child. These are new. And so each pregnancy, it has has to be redone because each baby has its own risk based on that particular pregnancy. So you can't say, oh, you know, last time I was low risk, so this time I'm also low risk. Well, no, I mean, each baby has its own risk. And so these things about checking the ultrasound features of this particular baby or the blood hormone levels during this particular pregnancy will give a risk for just this pregnancy, but not other pregnancies. The only thing that sort of carries is the age of the mother essentially. Everything else is unique to that pregnancy.
1: Yeah, agreed. And and just to add, I've heard many patients say, well, there's no Down syndrome in my family. I don't think I'm at risk to have a baby with Down syndrome. And that's something that we have to teach our patients that it's not something that runs in a family in general. The vast majority of cases of Down syndrome are new to that particular family because it's something usually that happens by chance.
0: There are other genetic conditions which are Almost always passed from parent to child and run in families, and that's a different type of conditions, different type of screening process we'll talk about, but for aneuploiding, it's aneuploidy, it's not something that runs in families, and so again, people may not want to know this information, but if they do, they can't rely on their family history to tell them what is their risk of having a baby with Down syndrome or any other aneuploidy. and so when people are they're pregnant and they want to make you know they want to do these sorts of screening tests, as you said, there are several options. And there isn't sort of a right or wrong way to do this because there's several tests. And the more tests you do, you can sort of become, uh, you can, you're you more likely to pick something up, but you're also more likely to get what's called a false positive, meaning a false scare. And so it's sort of a balance between doing enough screening tests that you don't miss a case of Down syndrome, but not too many screening tests that everybody you know is told that they're high risk and How to make those choices are very complicated from a statistical standpoint, but basically what it boils down to nowadays is there's an ultrasound that can be done in 12 weeks called the nuchal translucency. You can do that with or without blood testing, these serum hormones, and that was used for a very long time. And the results that you get, as you said, don't say your baby does or doesn't have Down syndrome. It gives you a number, right? Your risk is one in something. One in 100, one in 1,000, one in 5,000, one in 10,000. And based on that number, you can decide whether that number is scary enough to you that you want to move on to the next step, which would be invasive testing. Tell us about that and how that screening process works or worked for you in practice. And then we'll get on to the, the next phase, that NIPT test, which is newer.
1: I almost feel bad when I present all of the options to a patient because it's overwhelming and there are so many options. Even if you're just looking to do a screening test, for an employee. There are a lot of options out there, and sometimes there are a lot of options out there, but your doctor's office only offers one of those options. It kind of helps because you don't really have to consider all the different options. But the the test that, that I would think most people in this country are still doing is an ultrasound measurement of the nuclear translucency. And you can do your blood work either a few days before or on the same day. And then you'll get a result that that actually will show you this was your risk to have a baby with down syndrome before you did the test and now here's your risk that this baby has down syndrome now that you've done the test and it'll hopefully be a lower percentage and now your risk has been reduced from the test and these, the the common tests that are out there will also give you a prediction on the chances of the baby to have an extra chromosome 18 which causes a much more severe genetic condition usually actually lethal, but those babies can actually make it to the end of pregnancy and be born alive. So you'll also get that prediction. Here was your risk to have a baby with an extra chromosome 18 before you did the test. And now here's your risk after you've done the test. And so usually that's very reassuring to patients because most of the time they get good results. And I just want to stop and say what I tell patients is I I I I continue on and love my job because most of the time most babies are born healthy. And so We talk about these really scary conditions and these testing options are offered to every single patient, but the vast majority of the time, we're just giving out good news, which makes it very happy and joyful. So it's generally not so heavy, but we do talk about pretty serious conditions.
0: Right. And even when the screening tests come back, quote unquote, abnormal, and we're giving, you know, so to speak, bad news, which is about 5% of the time, even in that situation, if you move on to the next step most of the results will end up being normal meaning can, can again this is a screening test if you're looking for something that is going to only be present in maybe 1% of the patients one out of 100 and so and you screen all 105 come back as higher risk again only one in those five will actually have a baby with the condition so you you just what you did is instead of doing an invasive test on 100 people you're now only gonna do it on five, meaning you're gonna scare five instead of scaring a hundred, you're gonna scare five. Four of them will get normal tests and be relieved and they're done. And then the one person you'll pick up. And so even in the setting of these quote unquote abnormal screening tests, many, if not most, will still have normal results on the next step of testing. Like if you have an abnormal mammogram, it's gonna scare you, obviously. But then if you go on and do the next step, which would be a biopsy and find out you do not have cancer. Okay. So, I mean, the alternative is every single person just gets biopsies all the time to find out they have cancer. So you have to do the screening test first to find out who needs that sort of more invasive, more painful, potentially secondary test. And so you can sort of narrow it down to just a handful of people. So you don't have to do that on everybody.
1: That was very well explained. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: thank you. Uh, And so so we were doing this and then uh, several years ago, uh, a new testing technology was sort of created and refined and brought to the market. And that is testing for the DNA directly in the the mom's blood. So can you explain exactly what that is and how that works?
1: The testing is also a screening test that you might be offered at your doctor's office. And some people call it NIPT, which stands for non-invasive prenatal testing. Some people call it NIPS or NIPS. Non invasive prenatal screening, or actually, it can be called cell free DNA testing, which is actually describing what it is. So, when you're pregnant, the placenta, which in theory is made of the same DNA as the fetus, it's constantly shedding or leaking a little bit of sort of broken down DNA into the mother's bloodstream. And generally, we think of DNA as packaged up inside cells, but this is DNA that's free floating chopped up and it's floating in the mother's blood. So once the lab has figured out how to find these DNA fragments in the mother's blood, they can actually say, well, how many DNA fragments uh, represent chromosome 21 from this baby? How many fragments come from chromosome 18? How many fragments come from chromosome 13 and X and Y? And so they'll give us a prediction and say, okay, we saw an, an expected dosage of DNA fragments from chromosomes 21, 18, 13, X and Y, or two Xs if it's a girl, and we're expecting that the, you know, that the chances of an abnormality in the dosage or the number of these chromosomes is expected to be very low. And it's a very—it's currently the best screening test, the best way to predict abnormalities in chromosomes 21,
0: 13, 18, X and Y. Right. So it's highly accurate, meaning so we, we we draw sample blood from the mother's arm, and then the lab sifts through this blood and sort of finds the fetal DNA. And based on the, you know, there's different technologies, but like you said, based on the amount of the DNA, the lab will come back and say, okay, this pattern is a very low risk for having a baby with Down syndrome, or this pattern is a very high risk for having a baby with Down syndrome. And that blood test is the most reliable screen. As you said, it's not diagnostic. It just tells you about chances than anything else. And it's also the one that since it can do X chromosomes, Y chromosomes, it can predict whether the baby going to be a boy or a girl. And it's also highly accurate. It's like 99% plus accurate, which is really good. And so this test is available. And a lot of people just think of it as the am I having a boy or a girl test, and they don't realize how accurate it is for, for other genetic conditions.
1: You're right. You have that choice of finding out information about the sex chromosomes, that's the X and the Y, and the vast majority of people opt in because they want to know the sex of the baby. But what I'll explain to patients is sometimes, you know, there are girls in this world who have just one X chromosome, and, and, and this test would pick it up. if if that should be the case. And there are boys in this world who, instead of having just one X and one Y, have an X uh, or two X's and a Y. And this test will pick that, pick that up as well. So when you're asking to find out about the sex chromosomes, you might actually find out about a um, sex chromosome abnormality as well, which is, which is useful. Yeah. But sometimes that's not what patients are looking to find out. Right. And so again, it requires a conversation.
0: And, and the interesting thing is, you know, the screening tests we do for aneuploidy, so whether it's this blood test or whether it's the the nuchal translucency and serum hormone levels or a combination, they're done early in pregnancy. I mean, that this blood test can be done as early as 9 or 10 weeks, and then the ultrasound is generally around, you know, 12 weeks. And so you get all this information early, whereas people always thought, oh, I'm going to wait till, you know, I do the anatomy ultrasound at 20 weeks and see if the baby looks normal. And what we've found over the years is these earlier tests are so much better than looking at ultrasound at about 20 weeks, meaning so many babies who have genetic abnormalities will look normal at the 20-week ultrasound. And also on the flip side, a lot of these findings that are suggestive of aneuploidy on ultrasound at 20 weeks are just false, like they're false positives. You know, a lot of, a lot of you know, quote unquote normal people have that as well, and so if you want to get accurate screening you're better off doing it early not late which is unusual for a lot of conditions
1: yeah i mean it's great it's that's something that's changed over the years is that just if you you're getting so much done at the very beginning of the pregnancy and that's very useful as you go forward right so that by the let's say you do your screening test and you find out that you have good you know good results you feel good about it then if you have a what we call a soft marker on the ultrasound, something that can be can increase your chances that this baby might have Down syndrome. You've already done the test, you're already better armed or more, better well-equipped to, to face that news because you already know the chances are pretty low. So right. that's been great to, to bring all of that into the first or second you know, visit, essentially, in the pregnancy.
0: Pregnant patients decide if they're gonna do this screening or not. And then the other option is an invasive test, right? And we say invasive because instead of, you know, doing an ultrasound, which we don't consider invasive, you know, the probe touches the body, but doesn't like, you know, it's not invasive in that sense. Uh, or a blood test, you know, it's a, a needle going into the arm. So, it, you know, you could call that invasive if you wanted to, but it's really just a blood draw that people are used to. But when we talk about invasive tests for pregnancy, we're talking about taking a needle and putting it into the pregnancy, right? For a CVS into the placenta and for an amniocentesis into the amniotic fluid around a baby. And that either goes, you know, through the mother's belly or sometimes for a CVS, you can do it vaginally through the cervix, but those are invasive tests, but they're also diagnostic. So explain the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test.
1: Okay. So I think just had you described it earlier, when you're actually going in and either taking cells from the the placenta like in a CVS or if you're taking cells from the amniotic fluid in an amniocentesis you're directly testing the patient who is the fetus and it's just like if you or I were to go and get a blood test and they would tell us the answer what they found in the the pregnancy so those are the diagnostic tests it's like the fetus is the patient and you get a sample from the fetus and you get your results and and there's no further testing to be done generally that is the result that is the dna of that fetus
0: right so why would, Whereas, why wouldn't someone do that it's it's obviously more accurate because it's 100% yes or no you get a yes or no answer it's not you know screening it's not these numbers it's not complicated why wouldn't everybody do an invasive test a diagnostic test during pregnancy
1: good question you know i think generally it's it is it it does these procedures do pose a small but real there is a small risk of of inducing a miscarriage when you do the procedure. So it's very frightening and it can be a little bit painful. Most people have never had a needle even just put through the skin of their of their abdomen. So it's it's an unusual feeling. Sometimes you get a a, a severe cramp, like a menstrual cramp, and so even just the pain is is frightening and the thought of potentially doing anything harmful to this highly desired, highly loved pregnancy is is really frightening. So I think it's it's extremely scary for most patients.
0: What's the magnitude of that risk? Meaning, there is a risk of miscarriage, but w- what are the numbers we're talking about approximately?
1: Approximately, the risk for CVS or amniocentesis is about one in five hundred risk of miscarriage. What makes it hard is that you can never do a study and see, well, what would have happened to these pregnancies that had a miscarriage had you not done a procedure. So there's always a baseline risk of miscarriage. If you don't do any procedure on a pregnancy, some patients will have a miscarriage. And it's actually more likely if there's a genetic abnormality that there will be a miscarriage. So it's very hard. We have numbers based on studies, but we use about one in 500 to counsel patients. But with the way I look at that number, I know that some of those miscarriages that are in these studies, it might've happened even without a procedure. So very hard to get
0: that exact risk. Right. It's hard. And, and people say, what's your risk? What's your risk? And, you know, it's it's hard to sort of differentiate between, you know, centers or people. I think people who do these procedures probably have the same risk because it's more related to the, you know, the uterus and the placenta and the baby than it is, you know, the actual technique of the procedures. You know, I mean, obviously we do it sterilely and we, you know, clean the belly and we wear gloves and there's, you know, we, but everyone does the same thing pretty much. And what I tell people is, as you said, we can't find out exactly what the risk of miscarriage is because the only way to do that is literally take 2,000 women, divide them in half randomly and just do an amnio on 1,000 of them and do nothing on the other 1,000 and see who miscarries more. I mean, that's never going to happen. So what ends up happening is you, know, you you look at the data and there's math and there's all this you know, complex equations and, that gets done. And ultimately, everyone falls out on some number less than 1%. Right, whether it's one in 200, one in 500, one in eight hundred, but it's a number that's less than one percent, and so people have to decide. You know, they're they're in a situation when making this decision, where it's so interesting because people grapple with this so much and they have so much angst over this decision. But no matter what they do, ninety nine plus percent of the time it's going to work out fine. Meaning if they don't right. if they don't do an invasive test, ninety nine plus percent of the time they're not going to miscarry and their baby won't have a genetic condition, and they're good. And if they do an invasive test, 99 plus percent of the time, they're not going to miscarry, and their baby's not going to have a genetic condition. Unless, of course, the screening test said the risk was much higher, then that's something different. And so it's generally not the biggest decision people are going to have to make in in their lives or the life of their child, but it does get a lot of attention, and it gets a lot of um, anxiety and concern, because that's just what happens during pregnancy. But I do agree that most people, if they're choosing not to do an invasive test, it's because they're like, well, why would I take risk when everything seems to be going fine? I just, you know, enough is enough. I don't need to do that. And it's it's much more of a personality decision. People who want all the information humanly possible are going to do an invasive test. And people who are like, listen, you know, we've done enough. Everything looks good. I don't need you to stick a long needle in my belly to, you know, to prove that to me. And they (laughs) and they move on. And I think both of those are fine when the screening tests were normal. Because again, there there is a very low risk. When the screening tests are not normal and there's a much higher risk, I think most people will move on to invasive testing unless they really didn't want the screening test in the first place and it was sort of just done. Uh, and They're like, no, I don't need to know this information. I probably wouldn't have done the screening test if I really understood what I was screening for.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very hard moment. But in the end, uh, after talking to patients, you realize the hardest part, of going through the invasive test is really just waiting for those results. That's the hardest part. Like <laughs> right. at, once it's once it's done, most patients will say, I'm fine. I I would rate my pain as zero. That was really pretty good. You know, and so the hardest part is is just the anticipation and waiting for the results.
0: Right. And and this was all, you know, sort of known for a, a while. And sort of when you trained and I trained, this is the conversations we would have with people. And you could sort of give them the risk of Down syndrome and, you know, sort of, you know, maybe weigh it against the risk of the procedure and, you know, come to some conclusion. And then, as you know, this idea of testing for micro deletions came out, this microarray. Yeah. And that put, I don't want to say a wrench because it's not a bad thing, but it definitely made this conversation a little more complicated from a genetic standpoint. So can you explain what exactly are these micro deletions or microarray testing that's available for an amniocentesis or a CVS test?
1: When you do an amniocentesis or if you do a CVS and you send the sample to the lab, they will pop open the cells, get the DNA, and, and look at the DNA. And they'll look to see if, you know, you have two of each chromosome, which is what would be expected, adding up to 46. And that's what's called the karyotype or just checking the chromosomes. When you do a microarray, you're taking a magnifying glass down on each chromosome, like magnifying it much more, and looking to see is there a small piece of DNA that, that's missing, or is there a small piece of DNA there that's extra? and they'll look that's what a microarray test is, and so it's designed not to look at the whole genome at every single piece of every single chromosome, rather selected. Uh, important segments of each chromosome that, is, that are known to be important where there are certain diseases that are that are caused by a small piece of DNA that's missing in this very specific location. So it's designed to look only at the specific locations on the different chromosomes. And they look on all of the chromosomes, chromosomes 1, 2, 3, all the rate of 22, and the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. And it'll tell us if there's a piece of DNA that's either missing or extra. And it's, they really, the lab tries their best to only look at the areas that are very well understood and where the results can be meaningful to families. Like this missing piece of DNA causes this specific genetic condition. And now we can tell you about that condition so that you can better understand what's going on with this this pregnancy.
0: Right. And so I think what's hard with this. Is these conditions that the lab is going to test for essentially, and it's about it's a, few, a little bit over a hundred, I believe, right, uh, possible right. conditions. Most people have never heard of them, right? These are not common conditions. I think all a hundred combined, maybe the likelihood of someone having a baby is less than one percent. But it's not like they're nothing. These are serious conditions. It's not like oh, your baby's going to be a lefty or a righty. I mean, these are major, you know, problems. And so, you know, that's number one. And number two, since people, you know, since people haven't heard of them, they don't really, it's hard to wrap their head around what they're screening for. And number two, like Down syndrome and like aneuploidy, these are not things that typically run in families. They're usually new. So again, the fact that someone says, Well, I never had a family member with one of these conditions really doesn't have a huge impact on the likelihood of their baby having. One of these conditions, and so I think that that's hard for people again to wrap their head around because this is just a new concept that these that these can be tested for.
1: Right. I mean, I feel like again, I feel for the patient because they didn't walk into your office asking for that to test for, you know, one of these conditions on the microarray, and then here we are offering them 120 of these conditions that can be tested for. So it's very overwhelming, and I think that the our, our colleagues in the lab are trying to help us by providing tests that will be, that will provide useful, meaningful information to parents. But there's just no way to learn about every condition on the microarray before deciding you want or don't want to do that test. You sort of have to just take a overall, yes, I want to learn as much as I can. And I have the stomach for maybe getting a result that may be a little bit Uncertain because whenever you do a microarray, you can get a result that's definitive. You can get a result that says everything's fine. You can get a result that says we found a specific genetic condition. But you can also get a result that's called a variant of uncertain significance, where the lab is telling you, we don't know what this is going to mean for your child. And it's just a question mark. Some people will tell, once I explain that to patients, some people will say, I just don't have the the stomach for that. If, you, if that's something that you might tell me, I'm not doing this test. Most of the time you can say, look, we'll, we'll get you through it if that should come up. But that is something that is a challenge in, in I think, most prenatal diagnostic centers is these uncertain results when you do a microarray.
0: Right. And as you said, it, it's not something that people, some people come and say, okay, I'm going to do all the research. I'm going to, you know, look this up. And you can't. I mean, it's not possible to Dive into all 120 of these conditions that you've never heard of and learn enough about them, and you know what is going to mean. And do I want to test? I not want to test. Ultimately, it's it's almost just like a leap, like you said. Some people, when they're either in their decision to do an amni or a CVS, or when they're doing it for let's say Down syndrome, if they want to do these extra tests, it's really just a simple decision of do I want to get as much information as possible, meaning I can figure out if my baby does or does not have these other 120 conditions, which again, not at high risk for, but just do I want to know at the possibility of maybe getting information that'll totally scare us, but we don't really know what it's going to mean. And some people look at that and say, yeah, I want to know everything I can. And other people look at it and go, oh my God, no, that sounds horrible. And usually people know pretty quickly which one of those two camps they fall into and they'll right. just say, okay, I'm I'm the first person. I want to know every as much as I can. And the second one's like, no, I really don't want any chance of finding something that I'm not going to understand what it means. And then they make a decision. But, And that's when they're doing the test. But sometimes understanding that this option exists will impact people's decision to do an invasive test in the first place, meaning someone can get back screening tests for Down syndrome that are perfect and say, you know, your risk of having a baby of Down syndrome is you know, one in 10,000, it's really, really low, you're good. And they'll say, okay, so that means my baby's not going to have a genetic condition. And you'll say, well, no, it just means your baby very, very, very likely won't have Down syndrome, but there's other genetic conditions. They'll say, oh, really? You know, which
1: ones? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, so, right. And,
0: and you know, like, oh, and, right. then, and then it's sort of like, well, you know, there are these, we can do an invasive test to find out about these other genetic conditions. They're also rare. It's very unlikely your baby has them, but the only way to know is to do an invasive test. And then you'll say, okay, so on the one hand, you can do the test, take that very small risk of miscarriage and that very small risk of finding something, quote unquote, uncertain, but you'll get all that information. Or you can choose not to do it and just most likely to be fine, but find out after the baby's born. And again, most people will sort of know in their gut, am I the type of person who would take a little bit of risk? And again, it is a little, you know, less than 1% a little bit of risk to get as much information as possible about the baby? Or am I not that person? But that's important, again, to have these conversations and to sort of put it in context and not just make the decision as they used to do. Okay, I'm over 35, so I'm getting an amnio or getting a CVS, which is so primitive nowadays (laughs) to to make your decision based on that. Um, But it involves a lot of counseling and a lot of understanding about who am I as a person, like, you know, what kind of things scare me and what kind of things don't scare me and You know, it's it's there's more thought than you would think uh, has has to go into this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I love that when we talk about these things with patients, we're just sitting in a quiet room, and you're not on the telephone, and you're not doing anything else but just sitting and talking. And it's very important, I think, for a couple to sit in the room and just look at each other and think, "Well, do we want this information? You know, we never talked about this before. Would we, you know, would we consider?" an abortion and and they never actually talked about it out loud before and it's important to give a couple the moment to just sit there and express themselves and think it through and sometimes there's no answer that day but I think that's a beautiful thing that we give a patient the opportunity to just sit there talk it out and then guide them based on what's important to them and their most important values and sometimes the the couple is not on the exact same page and they need to work it out before moving forward.
0: Right. Yeah, sometimes, it brings <laughs> it, sometimes it brings up yeah. some strife. It's uh, yeah, I'll be saying, I'll be like, so do you want to do the best part of it, you Say, do you want to do a, a CVS? And she says, no. And he says, yes, I'll be like, well, yeah. I can't, like, sir, I can't do it on you. So <laughs> right, right. I, I exactly. think, yeah, her decision is going to, I think, ultimately uh, take first precedent. But it's, it is something that people have to, you know, try to get on the same page. And it's just so important advice I give pregnant women about this is, you know, you can either go down the road that like, close your eyes, your doctor will order some tests or not order some tests. And you're sort of at the mercy of what they order and hope it's all good. And if it's not, you'll deal with it. And some people just find comfort in that. They just take all the decisions out of their you know, hands. But if you really want to be involved in, in these decision processes, to have a conversation like, what are we screening for? How are we doing it? Is this what I want? Do I want to do an invasive test? Do I not want to do an invasive test? And to talk about these things in advance so you can only do the test that you want done and make sure you get all the tests you want done. Uh, on both ends of that spectrum. Because a lot of times people don't think about this, don't talk about this. And again, if everything comes back normal, who cares? But sometimes they really end up in a situation where they did tests that they didn't want to do, or they don't do tests that they did want to do. And I think that mm-hmm. that's, that's unfortunate, because there's a lot of ways this can be done for each individual uh, person.
1: We Yeah, we spoke earlier about changes that I've seen in the field of genetics. And right when I was starting my OBGYN residency, I remember learning about the shift in how we're going to counsel patients. And the American College of Genetics and the American College of OBGYN came out and said, we're going to move away from being prescriptive or paternalistic and say, okay, you're over 35, you're going for amnio. Rather, we, we, every woman has some risk of having a baby either with down syndrome or another genetic abnormality or microarray finding the risks are different depending on your age and sometimes it doesn't depend on your age and so nowadays what we do is we lay it all out there for the patient to see all these test options are out there these are the things that are available in 2020 and it's like a menu like you can do you can pick whatever you like they're optional. You don't have to do any of these tests, and so it puts the decision and it gives the decision making to the patient, which is empowering for the patient. But it can sometimes be overwhelming, and sometimes the patients are like, Could "You just decide for me," and they want to go back to, to the way it was. But I do like that we at least offer the patient to be part of that decision making process and take them through it.
0: Wonderful. Well, Tamara, this has been so helpful and insightful, and I'm sure. A lot of people listening uh, now understand a lot more than they did. Maybe they have a lot more questions now also (laughs) than they did before. And we're always happy to take questions if people send them in. We'll try to answer them. And obviously, we're going to, I think, even do one more to talk about carrier screening, which is its own separate topic. A lot of overlapping principles, but still uh, conceptually, it's a little different genetically. But thank you so much for coming on uh, and talking about this. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at H-W healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day.